0: Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Kreisler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Nathaniel Rich, who has just been named Associate Editor of the Paris Review. He's the author, most recently, of San Francisco Noir, The City in Film Noir from 1940 to the Present.
1: Nat, welcome to Berkeley. Thank you. Where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in New York City in Manhattan, um, grew up there, uh, went to college nearby and lived in Brooklyn for a year and a half before moving to San Francisco, at which point I began work on the book. And uh, let's go back a
0: minute. Looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world before
1: you went off to college? Good. Well, I certainly, uh, the reference to this book, I, I was raised... Um, by two, two parents who loved film, especially my father, and I was constantly watching movies and watching film, and and going to places like Film Forum and art house cinema type venues from the point you know <laughs> since I was very young, and watching a lot of Hitchcock, especially. Um, also, both of them uh, work in the literary industry and uh, newspapers and also a publishing company, so I also came up with, with that, in that world, and so it it seemed a natural thing to go into writing and, and journalism and editing, which was nice, and, and many, many other people I, I know in the business don't come from that kind of background, and it's more difficult, but uh, they've always been very Encouraging and accepting of, of that.
0: And and uh, when when you would uh, the family would read a book or see a film, would uh, uh, would the discussion around the dinner table or you know in the living room be about uh, what made this a, a great a work of art or a great film?
1: Uh, yeah. Even even at a young age for you, I, I think so, absolutely. Or or even if there wasn't. A discussion pointing out you know the finer critical points of, of why vertigo is an excellent film, just the very fact of of being exposed to to a lot of these films and older films black and white films which which seemed ancient when I was growing up, um, it just made me think about film in a different way and and with literature i suppose I, I did talk about. Books with my my family, but I don't. It was never a kind of rigorous homeschooling atmosphere. It's just mm-hmm. uh, my parents would buy me books that they liked and and that their parents had liked, and so I came up reading that way.
0: And, and did you go to uh, high school in New York City? I or? did.
1: I went to uh, to Dalton High School in New
0: York. hmm And did you have any teachers there who aspired uh, your
1: uh, inspired your literary and uh, cultural bent well I had, a, I had a few excellent um, English teachers. My favorite teacher was actually a, a geometry teacher from Germany, and so that, that didn 't inspire <laughs> yeah, yeah. me in any clear way <laughs> I um, but i 'd say more uh, once I got to college was when i mean I was, a, I was editor of the newspaper in high school, and I was always interested in, in writing critically and, and, and doing creative writing as well, but it probably wasn 't till college. Uh, really the first year of college where I began to think about this as something that I might actually want to do.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and what uh, in this period of say high school and then into college, we'll talk about college in a minute, what, what, were there any you know, events that, that really affected you, national events uh, that, that uh, uh, made you bring a uh, 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 gave you a, an interest in politics? Because I, I, there's some political themes in this book which we'll talk about
1: Absolutely. in Absolutely. Yeah, well, well uh, my father is very much involved in politics and probably the elections um, growing up, the elections were always a very big deal uh, and I would get very excited to watch the returns come in and, and I talked a lot about politics with my father especially and as far as, as national public events, the one thing I can really think of was uh, the O.J. trial when I was in ninth grade, mm-hmm. and mostly because it interrupted the NBA finals at, at the time, and I was a Knicks fan, and so it was a disaster <laughs> to not be able to watch you know this you know game three or four against the Rockets and uh, put a damper over the rest of the series, which they lost. Uh, so, but but there weren't. I can't really point to a specific incident mm-hmm. or moment um, that I that really altered my way of thinking but it was more of a gradual process and especially through college uh, to come to um, my interests in in film and literature and politics Mm -hmm. as well.
0: Uh, uh, Where did you go to college? I went
1: to Yale. Yeah
0: and and there you majored in in English or cultural studies?
1: I majored in literature which is like the English major except it, it there's less of a focus on the canon and it allows you to read works in translation, which is something I, I really wanted to do, um, and to use a focus on a foreign language and read books in that language. And I did Italian um, and became obsessed with, with Italy that whole time. Um, so it's it's basically the equivalent of, of comparative uh, literature mm-hmm. in other colleges.
0: And and did you were you part of the film society? Did you write movie reviews when you were in college? I didn't what? write
1: much film criticism, but I certainly attended all of the uh, the film showings, the film mm-hmm. society, and took a couple of film classes. And I've I've always tried. I took some film classes actually over the summer during high school at at one point. It's Film is always something that I felt comfortable talking about and writing about um, and understanding as, as well as I can. So part of the literature major, um, that one thing that distinguishes it from the English major is that it also allowed me to take film courses that would qualify for the major and study them all as texts in a way. Mm-hmm. And so I, I always saw literature and film as, as really part of the same world, and politics often as well. Mm-hmm. It's all mixed up together.
0: And and why do you think you uh, found uh, film a, a kind of uh, attractive uh, medium to to be thinking about? What was it uh, a generational thing? Because uh, you obviously come from a generation where uh, uh, the the visual media have, have really uh, exerted an enormous influence. Or, or absolutely, or well, I think
1: that was part of it. Uh, most of the films that. Well, one, one thing I remember is uh, when when uh, Pulp Fiction came out, I was about 14 or 15, and that was the first film, contemporary film that I had seen that really excited me and made me think about mm-hmm. film in a way beyond just whether I liked it or not. And since then, I I was very interested in, I began to become interested in certain contemporary directors and started to see in them interesting things and ties to previous generations of directors that I'd seen um, as I was growing up. And so in that sense, yeah, and the other thing is that certainly many people my age uh, when they take, who are creative, tend to go into film now and I'm especially seeing that now that we're you know in our mid-twenties and a lot of Creative people and, and writers tend now to go into film instead of literature. Which, so I think it's certainly, the, the, the interest is definitely part, and there's a generational aspect to that as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so help us understand what uh, a film critic does. What, 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 what does he do? Uh, 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 we all go to movies. You know, we all enjoy them. Uh, or dislike them intensely. We all uh, think about, well, no, not all of us. Some people think about them, and they don't wind up uh, uh, becoming critics. So so what, what makes uh, critics special when they write about film? Is it that they put it down on
1: paper and get it published? Possibly. <laughs> I don't know how special they are, but, uh, uh, you know, and I, and I can only, my, my experience as a film critic really is limited to and being published as a film critic is really limited to this book so I can only speak from my limited experience but one thing that I tried to do was to explain what a director was trying to convey, what what kind of points they were trying to make, try to understand what traditions they were working in. Um, with this book, you know, that meant laying out a lot of history of of how film noir came about. What kind of filmmakers were interested in making film noir, their background a lot there were a lot of, for instance, emigres from, from Germany and Austria, mm-hmm. and you see that in a lot of these films is a German expressionistic style that comes out of uh, a lot of German and Austrian films from the 30's and, and earlier um, so I think it's it 's trying to introduce the film to a reader and trying to to convey what the experience of watching that film is like and I think as to making a judgment about whether it's a good film or not a good film, I think that it should be secondary. And that mm-hmm. ideally, and, and this is true of, of any kind of arts criticism, I believe, is that the role of the critic is to convey accurately what is going, what the experience is of, of watching this film or play or reading a book um, to explain where it's coming from. And if he, does a good en- he or she does a good enough job, the reader or viewer should be able to tell whether or not they would like it regardless of what the critic thinks. Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to enjoy criticism that makes interesting points about works of art and rather than the thumbs up, thumbs down, which tells you very little except mm-hmm. for the the critics personal taste and, and many of the films I included in the book are films that are not very good and I think are are often pretty silly in, in some cases but I still wanted to explain what was interesting about each each one and why why they are worth talking about, even if they were bad
0: we 'll we'll, we'll get to the book in a minute. Sure. I should show it uh, San francisco noir uh, uh, and we 'll we'll talk about it in a second, but since we you mentioned it but but let me ask you one other general question sure. before we get right to the book, and that is wh- what what do you see as distinctive? about film as an art form you, you've worked in literature you you come from a, a, a cultivated background in, in which people were talking about you know different aspects of culture literature drama and so on so what, 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 is there something special about film that even though you're just starting out you've and with one book under your belt that that uh, helps us appreciate the medium and maybe also tells us why you
1: were so drawn to it? It's a good question. I, I think there's, there's something intangible about the experience of going to a movie theater and having the lights turn out and, and the the film start playing and there's something about that experience that maybe I associate with very happy early you know young experiences when I was very young um, but it's I I enjoy it as just another art form, another way of of putting across creative ideas. And and I think what's interesting about it, as opposed to literature, which is my other main interest, is that it's really such a collaborative effort. Um, And even when you have directors who are serious auteurs and, and control as many aspects of the production as possible, there's so much collaboration going on and compromise and interactions between different artists whether it be cinematographer or set design, actors, director. And so I think there's something that becomes a little bit out of, out of any one artist's control with films, where in a novel, a masterful writer will really control every aspect of it. And so I think there's, there's something mm-hmm. else going on in film, like other collaborative arts, that, that separates it from, from that. But... Um, that's, that's probably the, the, the closest I could come to.
0: An yeah, and, and I guess it's also the, that it, it's, a, it's a product that has to, through this collaboration, make it in the marketplace, right? Right. I mean, because uh, uh, that's the goal. That's how you get to uh,
1: the, sh- the shot at the hoop, so to speak. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's one thing that's interesting about certain genre films, because they're very, they're made in mind, especially many of these films, were made to make a profit. And that was very much the goal of a lot of these mm-hmm. films. Unlike, you know, maybe a, a Godard film or, or other art house films, these films were made to make a profit. So it's often interesting to see. I mean, and that's another collaboration between the producers and the studio who is funding the film and wants a, a sellable product, and the artists at work who they also might just want to make a lot of money. But but that's another, I think, interesting compromise that takes place, and it's. It, it's always fascinating to me to see how directors go about fin- finessing that that relationship and, and trying to make something that's has artistic merit as well as is something that's profitable.
0: Now let, let's m- move to the the subset of films that you're looking at in this book. And uh, the, the first important thing about uh, this universe is that they're film noir. Uh, when were film noirs made? And, and what are their defining features? You, you hinted at it earlier, but, but let's be more explicit about sure. what they are.
1: Often the, the genre, um, although some people would dispute using the term genre, but it, I think it's easier to, to use it—began uh, is often said to be, have begun 1941 with the Maltese Falcon, and the classic period of noir is defined as 1941 to 1958, roughly. And these are all films that are shot in black and white, have expressionistic style, very clear stylistic aesthetic, uh, stark black and whites, often oblique camera angles, and a style that creates a sense of uneasiness and and even paranoia at times, very uncomfortable expressionistic style. Um, Then it's also, and so some people would define film noir simply as films that are made from this period, 1941 to 1958, in this style the other Another argument has argues for uh, content, mm-hmm. and the content of a film noir the the basic plot line tends to be a hero, an anti hero down on his luck in an American city after the war who gets drawn into some kind of elaborate mystery or conspiracy by a seductive woman, usually the femme fatale, and is is caught up in this conspiracy and trying to figure out how to get out of it and and who's, who's trapped him and there's usually a murder involved, almost always a murder involved and there's a sense that no matter what he does, by the end he'll be doomed and taken up by this, this monster. Uh, for me, I, I, I don't think either one is exactly the, the full picture. Most of all for me, and this is a, a more broad definition, I thought of film noir as, as more about tone and the tone that I think all of these films share is a tone of dread. And so it 's the sense that everything is going to go badly, no matter what happens, and it's going to end usually with a bullet and mm-hmm. so So using that definition, um, you can move to the next era, which is from nineteen fifty eight to the present really and that's that those years films made during that time is are considered neo noir. These are films that are often shot in color, but try to stylistically approximate the same kind of effect that was achieved in black and white but using color and, and this takes on many different forms often using lots of shadow or often using strange colors things like that and many of these films stray from the the typical noir formula especially the, the typical noir plot and conventions and often focus on one element or one theme um... for instance a film like The Conversation focuses on paranoia mm-hmm. and it takes that theme to an exaggerated level usually. And so often neo-noirs resemble film noirs in one aspect but then ignore the rest of it and take that one theme to an obsessive level. Um, and then there are other films, more recent films that are similar to classic noirs just in the sense that they are nostalgic for them and, and, and they're, they're almost like homages to these earlier films. So. It's a broad genre, Every, everyone has their own definition. Many of books on film noir don't actually give any kind of, of, of clear definition of the genre, but simply list all the films that they consider to be film noir, and that, that's their definition. Mm-hmm. So I tried to define it as, as this tone of, of dread, and I think that most of the, the films that I've included, or all of them, have, have that in common.
0: Uh, you, you pointed out that that some of the directors and the writers had had European origins, and the, uh, the, the, the 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 films reflect the influence of German expressionism in film, like uh, movies. I should say to the audience, like M, uh, with Peter Lorre and, and the Cabinet of of, uh, cap, of, of Dr. Kildare. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. go back with. But but I'm curious about something: is how this foreign influence, that is this, this cosmopolitanism, these people who came from Europe and brought those styles, interfaces with what there is in the American ethos that, that right. makes these films popular here in the United States. Talk a little about that, because was it that the U.S. reached a certain Level of of development and urbanization and 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 uncertainty are we are we talking about the war years? What are we talking about that enabled this uh, mingling of cosmopolitan with a kind of uh, elements of of the national ethos to to make this click for an American market?
1: Right. Well, it it really came out of the war, World War II, and its noir is, is really about the American city. And in those years, the big American cities, where many of the, most of these films were shot, LA, New York, and San Francisco, were symbols of progress and expansion and, and success and, and the boom, follow, the post-war boom. And noir came, came along to say, maybe, maybe everything isn't quite so, so great as we all think it is. Maybe not everyone's doing so well maybe there's something more sinister going on, at least Mm -hmm. underneath the surface. And noir is very much about what's underneath the surface, the underground, the the underbelly. And so it it might very well be that it took foreigners, foreign filmmakers, to be able to see that and to to have a criticism of of Mm -hmm. the country that they had moved to, and and maybe they were a little more skeptical of the excitement and and the, the boosterism of those years. And and really, that that's the classic noir period. I think is really about that is subverting that kind of American um, triumphalism and saying that you know something something isn't quite right after all.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I- in this mix, you you point out that uh, the the the, n- n- uh, the genre, let's call it a genre for uh, sake of discussion, that. That there, you, you can see an evolution in these films, not just from black and white to color and the the, the narrowing of a focus which you discussed earlier, but but historical themes that were emerging. I, I recall that you you talk about the influence of the detective uh, f- uh, film and writing moving on to the the, the, the the fear of communism talk Talk a little about that, I think it 's interesting yeah well, point. there are many
1: many strands of, of noir and, and subgenres. Um, one was certainly the, the Red Scare Noirs, which is a hilarious subset of about half a dozen films that, where the, the enemy becomes not the, uh, the hoodlum or the gangster or the, the tough guy, but the, the commies. And so, Mm -hmm. and, and the good guy is the, is the American FBI agent. And so there are a couple of films like I Married a Communist um, (laughs) and Walk a Crooked Mile that, that use that that uh, their model, but really the way I think about how Noir evolved had a lot to do with how the American city itself evolved um, in those years and By the time you get, for instance, to the seventies, many of these cities were becoming decrepit and and the underworld was mm. was the world of these cities, and films like Dirty Harry or, or Bullet or Point Blank, which are all late 60s to early 70s, um, these cities are the city is now decayed. And so it doesn't make sense anymore to, to talk about an underworld or to have this contrast between the surface and, and the, mm-hmm. the underbelly. But the violence is out in the street. And so the films ha- reflect that in, an in interesting ways and, and become very different. Um, there's a, the most famous scene in Dirty Harry is where he's eating a hot dog. Clint Eastwood character, Detective Harry Callahan, is, is eating a hot dog in this, this seedy uh, restaurant in, this, in basically downtown San Francisco. And he detects that a bank robbery is going on in the middle of the day across the street. And there's an explosion, and, and it's the scene where he goes out and asks, asks him if he feels lucky. But there it's interesting because it's in the middle of the day. It's a business day. There are hundreds of people mm-hmm. all around. Cars are driving by but the violence is, is part of everyday reality. And, and the grittiness that, that mm-hmm. was once sought for in the underground is now everywhere. And the, the pedestrians aren't, aren't too surprised by it. They're screaming, but they, the cars mm-hmm. just keep driving by and so on. And so I think oftentimes the changes that came about in the genre uh, came about because of changes in, in the American urban situation. And there are a couple of books that are more scholarly books that are focused exactly on this question.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, that's interesting that you mentioned the Clint Eastwood because it was uh, one of the films uh, previous night. Uh, the American Film Institute did this the most famous quotes in that. There were several them, yeah. <laughs> scenes, and, and, and I uh, I can see uh, uh, very much uh, uh, what you're describing because I just saw the scene but but it it, it uh, your your explanation of uh, your justification for moving from the black and white uh, to the color uh, films such as the conversation and dirty Harry and and uh, final analysis and, and the others uh, the point is well taken because in other words so it, it, the the the, the terror or whatever is this, this anxiety is is kind of not in a closet anymore. It's, it's sort of come out and... and that yeah, material, and it's, it's
1: assaulting you. And I, yeah. I think a good, a good example of, of the ways that directors used color in interesting ways, trying to approximate the black and white is uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, directed by Phil Kaufman, which many people consider a science fiction picture, a horror film. Mm-hmm. But uh, Kaufman, I think, was, was very much working from a, a noir coming out of a noir tradition and the, the plot itself is, is like any noir where there's a down on, down on his like hero, becomes aware or suspicious that there's some kind of big conspiracy underfoot, tries to figure it out, sense that he's going to be destroyed by it and the way Kaufman uses the color is very interesting because he uses lots of very strange greens and purples mm-hmm. and lots of, of shots surrounded by shadow uh, so there's a sense that everything is a little bit off, and that in the shadows outside the frame, there's something lurking, and and it's there are pod people lurking there. So,
0: and and this was actually a remake of an earlier film, which can't be included in your collection right. because it the earlier film uh, 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 Kevin McCarthy was running to the streets of L.A. I guess he was going south instead of yeah, north. Yeah, right. right. It's not, they so moved it, it up to San Francisco. Yeah, so it couldn't be. It couldn't be in in. Uh, your film, which raises uh, uh, the, the next topic that we have to discover, because your your book is not just about film noir, but it's about uh, San Francisco and, and San Francisco in film noir. Uh, and uh, as I recall in, in the introduction, you actually explained to us what provoked you to write this particular book. And uh, uh, tell us about that day when you said, uh, made a comment about San Francisco, which someone reacted negatively to. Tell us a little bit. Well, I,
1: I, always, I always wondered why there were so many of these films shot here. And and whenever I would mention the idea for, for the book and the title of the book to friends and people who lived in San Francisco, they'd often be shocked because, to, you know, to them and to many people, San Francisco is one of the cheeriest, happiest, uh, most romantic cities in the world and, and the thought of, of anything sinister going on is, is, doesn't really make sense to them and, and there's some truth to that but I think that's part of the reason why so many of these films were shot here because it, it goes back to the original uh, classic era of noir when that you wanted to have a strong contrast between the outer world, the glamorous world, and the underworld and there's no city that is as beautiful and happy and glamorous as, as San Francisco, I think, in many ways. And so, thereby, the, the contrast between that and the underworld is all the more dramatic. And I think that was part of the reason why many of these filmmakers decided to shoot here, because in some ways it was it was the, the perfect model for noir to show corruption, that even in this this place that resembles a paradise, there is this very sinister... Uh, thing going on underneath, and that that no one's no one's safe from it. And I think that's part of the reason why Kaufman moved Body Snatchers up to San Francisco too, is because you know maybe you can you can imagine L.A. You know it wouldn't be such a stretch to imagine that everyone there is a is a pod person, but in, in San Francisco, you know maybe mm-hmm. there's something. You know, then you know something must really be wrong. You know, if, if ever
0: here it would have something to do with biotechnology, right? Yeah. Exactly. They, they engineer in, in, them in, themselves in 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 the market So so then is it so? So what? Uh, okay. So so there's this contrast between beauty and the underworld, but uh, but also it must have to do with the topography of the place and yeah. the, the hills and 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 the, the rise and. the you know the fall of of the the landscape sure, and so on. It,
1: yeah the, the the topography certainly gives itself to these uh stark camera angles and uh, naturally the city has all of these these expressionistic almost lines in the in the environment and i think that was part of it i think proximity to los angeles is also a factor um but for me, you know, but, but at the same time, I don't think that's everything because you know there weren't any films made in, in San Diego, for instance, and Seattle is a very hilly city, but you don't see many films shot there. I, I think it, it, it has most, mostly to do with this, the image of San Francisco as this beautiful, almost, almost paradise city by the bay. And, well, and then there's also a historical element that, that ever since its days, uh, since the gold rush, era as the Barbary Coast. It was a, a place where people uh, would run away to, would go to start anew, often in search of, of fabulous riches and wealth, and people would change their identity. And, and I think that all those themes are very crucial to film noir, so it, it fits there as well. So I think it was a convergence of, mm-hmm. all, of these, all of these factors, the historical, topographical, and uh, and this, the image of this beautiful city.
0: There's one element that that uh, strikes me, which I'll raise now, which is the the uh, San Francisco's uh, potential for the exotic, because I happened, as I told you earlier, to watch uh, the Lady from Shanghai, which is one of the movies that you discuss. And you know there is this uh, sinister uh, tone that comes from the Asian influence. Uh, she is a, a woman who lived in Shanghai, but who also, you know, has a driver who is Asian, or at least she works in, in, at a turning point in the film uh, Orson Welles flees uh, to the uh, Asian community. And if you think of Vertigo, uh, what, what uh, the first time I saw it, I was really struck by the, you know, the Spanish influence that, yeah. that Hitchcock was both playing with the, the mysterious Carlotta, you know, has a a Spanish background, and uh, uh, then there is the mystical element. You know, which is which is also present. Whether she's uh, Carlotta is still alive, I, I guess. What I'm suggesting is that it, as a crossroads, you know, with this beautiful landscape, for all the reasons that you've given, but in addition, uh, the the it, it San Francisco is open. To, uh, to these cosmopolitan influences and, and that presence can be seen in a lot of these
1: films, actually. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think that the film that, that features that the most uh, is a very obscure film called Chinatown at Midnight, which begins with clips, as many of these films, by the way, do, and especially the ones in the 40s and 50s, begins with panorama of San Francisco and then zooms in onto one particular part of the city and then into the underworld, really. But in this film, the underworld is is Chinatown, and mm-hmm. so there's this r- ridiculous voiceover by a a man who's first introduces you to the city, and you know how beautiful the city is, and the trolley cars, and so on. But then within the city, there's this sinister Oriental world of Chinatown, and it's extremely dated, obviously. But it's it plays up that that angle, that foreignness and strangeness, that that is, is part of, uh, you know, to some extent is part of the city. And, and many, it's true, many of these films try to use some kind of, or either the Chinatown angle or some kind of cosmopolitan angle to give a sense of, of uh, foreign, some kind of exo- exotic quality that you may not be able to get in other cities like uh, Los Angeles, for instance.
0: Now, one other thing we have to mention, which I know you you had a beautiful paragraph about, which is the weather, especially the fog. That that also is a a, a contributing uh, factor in making the directors choose San Francisco to make films, and you to choose to write this book about right. San
1: Francisco and the films. Absolutely, and I I love the fog, and I, I've. Uh I'm always, I'm always frustrated that there aren't more films that make use of the fog. There's one example I can think of is Born to Kill, a uh, film with Lawrence Tierney uh, from 1946, I believe. And there's a beautiful scene shot at night at Ocean Beach, or what's supposed to be Ocean Beach. Although you don't see the water, it's just on the sand dunes, And there's a, fo- a fog sweeping through under the street lamp, and sand is blowing around, and it's very eerie, but there, there aren't very many examples of, of films that I can think of that, that make dramatic use of the fog. You'd expect a lot of these films to have some kind of sinister criminal walking out into, you know, out of the fog or into the fog, but may, there aren't many of them. And maybe it has to do with uh, maybe something hard to, to film. I don't know. But I'm, I'm always I always want the fog to be more of a part of it. It's part of the identity of the city, so it works in that way. But it's it's rare that it's actually part of the film itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you you mentioned several films. You mentioned the Maltese Falcon. Uh, you mentioned Hitchcock's Vertigo. Uh, we mentioned uh, uh, Orson Welles' The Lady from uh, from uh, uh, Shanghai. Uh, Uh, and, of course, Clint Eastwood and and Dirty Harry, although I guess he wasn't the director of of the first one. Uh, Is there, if you look at their San Francisco film noir films, is there some common theme or element that emerges that that, uh, combines these very different films uh, because of the use of San Francisco, or is it just Uh, uh, a way to fill out our environment, our understanding of the environment in which these directors made these great films.
1: I think that there, if you look in certain periods, there's there's certainly things in common around San Francisco. In the classic period from the 40s and 50s, San Francisco is always this beautiful, glamorous city, and they, they they make as much of that as possible mm-hmm. and i mean really most of them begin with a, a shot from on on top of twin peaks just a panorama of the city sometimes it's moving right to left sometimes it's left to right sometimes it's, it mm-hmm. doesn't move at all and then it goes into the you know into the the scene itself and many of these films also uh, hilariously have a narrator who introduces the viewer to the the city as if they'd never heard of it before mm-hmm. so explaining that you know, San Francisco is the 12th biggest American city and, and really, really silly primers on the city as if it was something that was unknown to the, to the viewers. But if you try to compare the films from that era to the 70s, it, it becomes very difficult. Um, in fact, there's more, I think, in common with films in the 80s and 90s with the earlier earlier age. And the 70s tend to, to focus on a different San Francisco and this, this grittier San Francisco that we're talking about where the city is no longer as majestic as it once was. And it, it's very much about the decline of the American city and the decrepitude of it. But in the 80s and 90s, you see a very nostalgic return to those the way San Francisco is, appears in those earlier films. And there is a nostalgic quality. And, and often many of those films, films like Basic Instinct, or uh, Twisted is another Phil Kaufman film that came out last year. Um, even final analysis very consciously look back at those earlier films, especially vertigo, and revisit them to the point almost of, of mimicry uh, and imitation. Jade is another example, so I feel like that there, there is unity at, at both ends, but in the middle there was this period which produced often really many of the, the best films, the most interesting films of the bunch, where it became something else and, and the directors who had come of age watching these films when they were young in the 40s and 50s wanted to take it to some other level and, and to do something different but using the same themes and, and made more ex- extreme films in a certain certain way and films where they, they emphasized these qu- certain qualities of noir until they became almost unrecognizable. And then in the 80s and 90s it sort of reverts back to, conforms back to the original.
0: Mm-hmm. How many movies do you cover in your book? Um,
1: Forty-one.
0: And, and I would think that most of them you couldn't go out and check
1: out no. the video store, so how did you do the research for this? Well, you I-, watch them like I watched them all. I watched them all. I watched many more than 41. I watched many films that were set in San Francisco but weren't actually filmed there. Mm-hmm. And. and There's a period, especially in the 40s, early 40s, where it was considered low class to shoot on location if you could afford, if you're a studio that could afford to make beautiful sets, Mm -hmm. use backdrops. And in fact, the Maltese Falcon and Out of the Past, which are maybe the two most famous San Francisco noirs, were not shot on location at all. And they used some stock footage of the city. But for some of the more obscure films, I relied on this excellent nonprofit group called the Danger and Despair Knitting Circle, which is a group of f- mostly film collectors and, and noir addicts and experts who are based in San Francisco, and they have their, their goal is to, to create a virtually a, a comprehensive library of all of noir, and they have something like 800 titles, and, and they made a bunch of them available to me, including some of the films like uh, Treasure of Monte Cristo, Chinatown at Midnight, No Escape, which which you can't find in any real copy as far as I know, uh, but and many of these films are very cheap productions, poverty row productions, and are often very silly and, and strange, but but for that are also the, the most are also extremely interesting and and funny, uh, especially Chinatown at Midnight with. Uh, an actor named Hurd Hatfield, who some consider to be the worst actor of all time. <laughs> I see. So, Which maybe makes him one of the best. I don't, I don't know. But uh, it, it was through them I got to see a lot of these films, and that was exciting. And anyone can, can go to their website and, and order them as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and you actually uh, keep your sense of humor in, as you write this book and, and uh, give it to us because there, there are times where it's, it's pretty hilarious. Uh, I remember... Uh, uh, and you 're commenting on it uh, some of the the anti communist movies where the we, we moved from the you know the sinister quality of the mob or, or the evil woman uh,
1: to the to the communist menace without uh, blinking an eye yeah well I mean a lot of these films are hilarious and if you and if you go to screenings of them at noir festivals uh, or elsewhere, uh, often the response that you see most most often in the audience is laughter, and, and some people feel bad about it because the ser- the movies themselves often take themselves very seriously, but a lot of them are ridiculous and, and uh, really strange, and, and a lot of the dialogue is, is so off the wall, and I think it's important to keep a sense of humor about a lot of these films because that's much of the fun about them. There are many, there's really been a resurgence of, of books in the last, or, not resurgence, but just a uh, an explosion of books in the last five or ten years about noir, and many of them were are written as as really scholarly texts and and take everything very seriously and try to to codify it in a, in a way that that I don't particularly find appealing. And I I think it's important to understand the the fun of these films as well and to enjoy that too.
0: One thing that's not fun that that is somewhat dark and I I would like for you to comment on is the role of women in these films because they are uh, a source of the evil as as you suggested earlier. Often, not always, but often. uh, Leading uh, uh, I'm thinking of Rita Hayworth in (laughs) Lady of Shanghai which I just saw. Also uh, more of an innocent but in vertigo um, um, Madeline uh uh the kim novak character who who leads uh uh Jimmy Stewart as part of a plot, but then yeah. changes uh uh in in the course of the film Talk right. a even, little about that yeah yeah
1: even even there in vertigo where she the Kim Novak character originally appears as a as a victim or at least a, well, a victim at least of a mental illness perhaps or or maybe being haunted by by a ghost turns into a a character who is, is very much intentionally led uh Scotty Stewart's character into this web mm-hmm. and, and becomes very sinister and, and and nasty in her way. And she's really blamed, I think, for a lot of what happens and and it's true of a lot of the, Rita Hayworth in Lady from Shanghai is maybe the most evil uh femme fatale of all of these because she's so cold hearted and at the end she's she's just so uh, evil and, and that might have to do with uh, Wells and Hayworth's marriage at the time was crumbling and many people point to that as, as the reason why he 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 made her so so nasty in that film. There are some examples of films where the female is the is the main character and is the is the noir hero and is treated sympathetically. There are certainly not as many and the archetype is a male um, you know, often an, an ex-soldier or a private eye. But there are some great films. One is uh, Mildred Pierce with Joan Crawford, which is not in the book. It's not mm-hmm. San Francisco. Another, but another one that Joan Crawford is in is Sudden Fear, where she's led in by a male fatal, I guess, a Jack Palance character, who's this very uh, bizarre actor who, who is really playing a part um, in a similar way. So it... It is an unfortunate thing about many of these films, and it is something that's even carried over into films in the '80s and '90s. Uh, films like *Basic Instinct* and *Jade*, and not all of these are excellent films, but they they do use that same prototype, and it it reflects, I think, something about American culture in the '40s and '50s. But you, you'd like to see, and today, but you'd like you'd like to see more films since the films are all about subversion and 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 subverting norms and and. In, in American society at the time, uh, one would like to see more females have more sympathetic or heroic roles, but it, it's the fewer, few and far between. Um, but there have been noir festivals that have focused only on the films where the females are noir heroes, but usually those films are reserved for the Barbara Stanwicks and Joan Crawfords, and it's, it's very rare that someone who is not of that caliber or, or, or renown at the time would get any of these these kinds of roles mm-hmm.
0: Now what, what is it about a work like yours that uh, in, in what way do you see it furthering the, the audience's appreciation of, of this genre? Is it by filling out uh, 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 this subset and the story of the subset? Uh, do you have a goal there, uh, uh, or, well, <laughs> or are you trying to make them tourists to San Francisco? You no, know, well,
1: it, there's sort of there's several different goals, I, I suppose. Uh, the main one was it was a subject that I I thought was fun and I thought was interesting and it was a great way to learn more about film noir and San Francisco and films and and, and all of that. So I, I don't know if when I wrote it if I, I had in mind you know, if I was trying to entertain any particular audience or, or inform them or anything, but it was more just to understand why so many films have been made in the city. What is it about San Francisco that attracts these films and trying to understand the qualities of San Francisco that attracted me to it and and what makes it a a beautiful yet mysterious and, and strange place and what, it, what is it that fascinates me about the city? Because I felt, I think, on some level, that what fascinated me about the city is what fascinates me, in some ways, about the film. That it, it is a kind of otherworldly place where, where strange things can happen, and I tried to. So I think I tried to write about that as well. But, but yeah, more more um, uh, tactfully. Like there was there were sort of three, three goals and one was the travel guide aspect to it. One is a historical guide to the city and the city's darker past and then the third is is a critical overview of the whole genre of film noir as seen through these 41 films because I think they are representative mm-hmm. of the way that the genre as a whole has evolved over over the these 50 some years mm-hmm. since it began. I,
0: I'm curious what we, we when, when I've talked to directors in the past uh, people who who do movies? They they you know this this notion of film as a dream world comes again and again. You know it's and and I'm curious what what is it about being in this dream world, but then seeing something that's actually real? Because I mean I know that. When I see a movie, uh, and I'm generalizing from my experience, but I think other people, you know, and there's something in the movie that you see other than the star. It somehow grounds it in a reality that that lets you... Absorb the dream. Is that fair? Is that is that what's going on? I mean, why you you go through quite a listing of all the buildings, you know, with the addresses and so on, and and I think you're right about it. Why are you right about uh, people wanting that?
1: Well, it it is always an interesting thing to to me because I I've never been that interested in seeing place real place locations from films, and yet Mm -hmm. that's very much part of what the book is about. But I try to include. Uh, locations from these and maybe I should explain that each chapter pairs a film with a location from the film. Um, I tried to choose uh, locations and, and places around the city that feel very much part of the this dream world of, of film film noir in particular, and so many of the sites aren 't common tourist sites or or even buildings at all but but empty empty gaps in the in the urban grid and, and lots and and places where buildings once existed or places where there used to be something interesting but it's now changed in another way. And that's something that gets more to the nature of what fascinates me about cities, especially American cities, where there's so much renewal constantly and so much rebuilding. And it's always fascinating for me to see little little places where you can detect Part of the city's past that still remains, and you don't have that in Europe, for instance, where you still have you're walking amid the ruins, you know, in a place like Rome. But in San Francisco and in other American cities, where you can find little little places in the in the city that brings back something of its past, I always find that beautiful in a way. And there are some remarkable examples in San Francisco. One that jumps out in me is the, uh, Citro, the ruins of the Sutro Baths, which was this enormous crystal palace-like structure in, a, in the cove under the cliff house. And it appeared in, in uh, the lineup. I have it as a, once it had become an ice skating rink because the, the swimming pools had fallen out of favor, mostly because they were really freezing because they used ocean water. And shortly after the lineup, that's 1958 the whole palace caught on fire and burned to the ground and the owners collected lots of insurance money and left the country and it's this very shady noir like uh, <laughs> dealing and and the ruins remain and they never cleaned them up and it's now part of the the parks department and you can go and walk walk along these these fallen columns and and you can still see the outline of the swimming pool which was The largest swimming pool, I think, in the country, if not the world, at the time, and it's very strange. So there are some moments that are some places that are exciting to me, as as they have their own noir history, and then they fit into the Hmm. films themselves, and they remain to this day this kind of place in between the city and its past that doesn't fit in either one clearly. Mm-hmm. And I, I love those places uh, in San Francisco. San Francisco seems to have a lot of places like that. In fact,
0: uh, two things are striking. One is that in your book, you 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 write very good descriptions of some of these places, both from the film and and, and from the way they are now. Uh, and and you're suggesting you just suggested that doing that is a is, is part of a a rendering of the history of, of San Francisco and not just of the film.
1: Yeah, and it, it but it's it's really an alternate history of the city. It's not the the kind of history you would read in a a book about San Francisco's mm-hmm. history, but this forgotten history. And I, and I think that's what's interesting is I tried to to create or at least reveal a kind of other San Francisco, a noir San Francisco that is is there if you look for it, but is is you have to look for it, and you see it in these films. And it works because noir, unlike, you know, if I had done romantic comedies in San Francisco or or musicals in San Francisco or something like that, um, they choose different locations. And that's something I discovered as I was going about mm-hmm. doing the book. Um, noir, since it's very much about the subversion of the the you know outer reality of the city, they focus on strange places out-of-the-way places, alleyways and abandoned buildings and theater, decrepit theaters, things like that, sutra baths, they often don't, and when they do focus on a tourist landmark, such as Union Square and the Conversation, they, they render it, or especially Ocean Beach in Born to Kill, they render it almost unrecognizable, and, and it becomes something else altogether mm. so that you might not even recognize it when you go to it. I've had people who had, have read the book and told Mentioned that they didn't realize and obviously they're not from San Francisco, but they didn't realize that the conversation, that scene was set in Union Square and, and it seems so obvious, but at the same time it, it's, it's part of what a lot of these films do, which is render unrecognizable hmm. these places in the city that, that we know as the, these major landmarks. So I think simply by listing these locations you get at what noir is trying to do and the way it, it it works with the architecture of, of uh, these cities, especially San Francisco.
0: So, so one final question, and I guess that would be: so, what is your favorite film noir set in San Francisco, and why?
1: Well, I think my favorite film, San Francisco film period, would probably be Vertigo, and the city is is, is in that in that picture Hitchcock set out to make. He called it a Valentine in San Francisco. He loved San Francisco. And the city is rendered so beautifully in that. And its color, it's one of these first films that I think you could consider noir, but were shot in color. And But the color itself is shot in this type of film called Vista Vision. And it's, it's almost spooky. There's a spooky quality to it because it, it seems ethereal, almost ghostly, um, which ties into what, the story of the the film, which is, is is in many ways a ghost story, and so it's it's a beautiful. The city looks beautiful in it. The Golden Gate looks really bright red, and the water is is emerald, and it's gorgeous. And yet, you still have this feeling that that everything is not quite right. That maybe it's it's too nice, or it's or there's a there's a ghostly quality to it. And so I think that's the film I would have to point two and it 's also the, one of the films that got me excited about this in the first place and uh, from an early one of my favorite films from a very early age but if you looked in you know in the classic era i 'd also mention Woman on the Run with Anne Sheridan, which is a, a female hero, which is a very uh, touching moving story, but also very dark and, and very creepy in a way, and of more recent more recent films. Uh, at all, or at least the, the next era, I would also say point-blank, which the first scene and the last scene are set in San Francisco, but the rest of it goes to L.A. But there, again, those scenes are set in Alcatraz and at Fort Point, and those two buildings take on very haunted, mysterious qualities, and they seem very much um, urban ruins in the way that the Citro baths are now and renders them completely unrecognizable and and strange, foreboding, especially.
0: Well, on on that note, uh, Nat, I want to thank you very much, and I want to show the audience your book again, San Francisco Noir, and and it's cram-packed with information beyond what we've discussed here, so I recommend it, and uh, uh, thanks very much for joining us, and good luck at the uh, Paris Review. Thank you very much for having me, it was fun. Thank you, and thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history.